Jeremiah chapter 32, beginning at verse 22. It says, And you gave them this land, which you swore to their ancestors to give to them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they entered and took possession of it, but they did not listen to your voice. And they did not follow your law. They did nothing of all that you commanded to them to do. And you caused to happen to them all this disaster. Look, the siege ramps have come up to the city to capture it. And the city has been given to the hand of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it because of the sword, the famine, and the plague, and what you spoke happened. And look, you are seeing it. Yet you have said to me, Master Yahweh, this is the prophet Jeremiah, he said, Yet you have said to me, Buy for yourself the field with the money, and call witnesses as witness, though the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans. May Yahweh bless His word to our hearts today. Sometimes we make decisions and come to conclusions without having all the information. Anybody ever do that? You get yourself into a mess because you make a decision or you reach a conclusion instead of assessing the problem and looking at it from all angles, whether it be in an individual case or a job or parenting or marriage or what have you with a friend. You come to a conclusion that's wrong because you didn't take into consideration everything that needed to be took into consideration. And likewise, sometimes we just don't read enough of the Bible. We don't read enough of the Scriptures. We stop reading the Scripture too soon, and thus we miss so much gold and silver in the Word of Yahweh. We have to continue to read. We have to be willing to grow and we have to constantly refresh our memory on things that we believe and we have to constantly go back over certain things that we think we know inside and out and backwards and forwards because I guarantee you there's something that you've missed and there's something that you haven't read and there's something that you stopped reading too soon. I read the Bible and I study the Bible a lot. But in the last 25 years of doing that, I never linked Jeremiah 32 and Jeremiah 33 with Jeremiah 31. And you think, that's odd. Surely you've read the book of Jeremiah, Brother Matthew. I've read it all the way through. I don't know how many times. And then even more so, I've read certain texts and scriptures and paragraphs and blocks. But I never saw how chapters 32 and 33 were a continuation of the new covenant promise in Jeremiah 31. Now we've been over Jeremiah 31 in the last two lessons where Yahweh makes this new covenant or promises that He's going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And I went towards the end of chapter 31, verses 38 through 40 that talked about a restoration of the land and it mentioned specific names and towers and valleys that would be restored and never again come up for destruction. Well, Jeremiah 32, Jeremiah 33, and Ezekiel 36, which we went over last week, but also Ezekiel chapter 37, and Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48, 
and Isaiah 2 and Micah 4 and Zechariah 14 and a lot of other passages, the end of the prophet Isaiah, are all talking about the same thing. All of these passages are talking about the new covenant, the kingdom, the resurrection, the spirit being given. And I've been teaching that the new covenant is the Torah, the law of Yahweh on our hearts and our minds. I've been teaching that for a long time. From the very time I began to teach, I've been teaching that based on Jeremiah 31. But I always wondered if the law was on my heart, the law was on Matthew's heart, why did I still struggle with sin? I always wondered that. Because I knew there had to be a difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. But yet, it seemed to me like I did the same thing that Israel of old did in Exodus 19 when Yahweh promises them through prophet Moses, if you'll keep my commandments, you'll be my special people. And they say, everything you've said, we're going to do. And then not long after, they don't do it, right? Moses comes down off the mountain and what is this sound that I hear? That sounded just like me. It sounded just like Matthew. I've been in meetings before and had Bible studies before and been to feasts before and I felt that same way. And all that you've said, Yahweh, I'm going to do. I'm excited to serve you. I'm ready to keep your commandments. I'm ready to do everything for you. I'm going to do everything that you've spoken. And then time goes by and I renege on that promise. And I fall short of the perfection of Yahweh's law. So I wondered if the law is written on my heart fully and completely, then why do I struggle just like Israel of old? And the answer, I believe, is as we went over last week, the law has begun to be written on our heart, which is parallel with us being given the, the down payment or the earnest of the Spirit. But it's not completely there yet. We have a desire. Paul says in Romans 7 that I have a desire to do what is good, but I do not have the ability to do it. Anybody ever feel like that? You have a desire to serve Yahweh and then something happens and a temptation comes up and you give in and then you feel terrible and you wonder why didn't I do that? It's because salvation and resurrection and new covenant and spirit, all of that is a process whereby Yahweh in His long-suffering compassion continues to take us back based on His mercy. Just like He did in the Older Testament. It never occurred to me in Jeremiah 31, verse 34, that one of the promises of the New Covenant was that we wouldn't have to teach one another the law never occurred to me until probably about five years ago. Over the last five years, I've learned some of this. There would be no more relapse. Sin would be forgotten, according to Jeremiah 31-34. No more relapse. No more promise and then backpedaling. You'd continue to keep Yahweh's law. It never occurred to me that the new spirit was only partial now. Ezekiel 36, Ephesians 1. And I started to link up the land promise in Jeremiah 31 to the New Covenant there in verses 38 through 40, but I kind of somewhat ignored it. And a lot of times we do that because whether or not we realize it, if we grew up in Christianity, we're trained to think that the New Testament can override the Old Testament. 
And we read that way a lot of times without even recognizing it. That's not how the Bible works. Uh, The Old Testament is the foundation. We've got framers, carpenters in here, and we know that once you lay the foundation, the foundation continues to be important for as long as the house stands. The Older Testament is the foundation. And when we read the Newer Testament, the apostolic writings, we should not ever think it's okay for this to contradict something that we've already read previously. And so I constantly have to help myself not read the Bible that way simply because a lot of times I forget to check my pockets for traditions even though I've dropped the bags and I continue to read how I was taught to read growing up. I did not link the no war. Remember last week where we read they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning knives or pruning hooks? I didn't link the no war up with the new covenant, Isaiah 2, but it is. Micah 4, where everybody sits under their vine and their fig tree and they have security and they have peace. I didn't link that up with the new covenant, but the prophets do. There would be safety. There would never be an uprooting from the land of Israel again. I didn't link that up with the new covenant, but the prophets do. And... What all this actually is, brothers and sisters, all of this actually is the gospel of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom. I want to read a couple of verses in the gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Speaking of Yeshua the Messiah, it says, And He went around through all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news. Some Bibles say the gospel the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness among the people. And a report about Him went out throughout Syria and they brought to Him all those who were sick with various diseases and afflicted by torments, demon-possessed and epileptics and paralytics and He healed them. And large crowds followed Him from Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea and from the other side of the Jordan. The good news about the kingdom is the message that we've been talking about in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, Isaiah 2, Micah 4, the end of the prophet Isaiah, and all through the prophets, Zechariah, Zephaniah chapter 3. This is the kingdom, and this is the gospel, or the good news that Yeshua preached. And what could be any better news than the law being completely written on your heart? And no, no need to teach anymore and security in the land and sitting up under a fig tree in a grapevine. No more war. You're gardening instead. What could be better news than that? The good news about the kingdom. I've noticed that whenever Yeshua proclaimed the good news of the kingdom, He also healed people. I'm talking about physical healness. And I think what that links up to is Revelation 21, where when the finality of the kingdom gets here, there'll be no more sickness, pain, disease, or anything. So when Yeshua said the kingdom of heaven is at hand or is near to you, I think part of what He was talking about was... I'm going to heal you. Just like it will happen in the future in totality, I'm going to give you a taste of it right now. Look at Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. It says, And Yeshua was going around all the towns and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were weary and dejected like sheep that did not have a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore ask the Lord of the harvest 
that he send out workers into his harvest. Once again, the good news of the kingdom, this is the gospel message that the prophets all prophesied about. The kingdom of Yahweh that will come still yet in our future. Luke chapter 4, verses 42 through 44. This is an interesting one. It says, And when it was day, he, the Messiah, departed and went to an isolated place. And the crowds were seeking him and came to him and were trying to prevent him from departing from them. But he said to them, It is necessary for me to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of the Almighty to the other towns also, because I was sent for this purpose. For what purpose? To proclaim the good news of the kingdom. Now it's not until you get in the Gospels, it's not until you get to Matthew chapter 16, when the Father in heaven reveals to the Apostle Peter who Yeshua is. A little bit after that, it says that from that time forth, Yeshua began to tell His disciples that He would be delivered over into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, be betrayed, be crucified, die, and rise again on the third day. That's when He started to tell them that message. And the first time that He said it, the Apostle Peter said, no, 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 that's not going to happen. Now, if Yeshua had been teaching His death, burial, and resurrection up before then, why, number one, does the text say from that time on he began to do it and number two why did Peter get so upset uh, if he'd been hearing it that whole time that he'd been with the Messiah the reason is is because he hadn't heard that message from the Messiah yet but when we think about the gospel when we think about the good news our minds automatically go to the death burial and resurrection of the Messiah and that's where we start and that's where we stop now that's a big part of the gospel. Big part of the good news. As a matter of fact, if you don't teach that with the gospel, you have a deficient gospel, deficient good news. But that's not all that the gospel is. Because here at the beginning of the gospels, Matthew 4, Matthew 9, Luke 4, we see Yeshua is teaching the gospel. He's teaching the good news, but he's not talking about his death, burial, and resurrection yet. He's talking about the good news of the kingdom. See? <laughs> We're thankful for what is now. We're thankful that we have a desire now. We're thankful that we are able to congregate now. We're thankful for the readings now. But we do still look to the fullness. I want you to see this in Hebrews chapter 11. I do think that a lot of people in Christianity have the right idea. It's the doctrine I don't think is entirely scriptural, but they have the right idea about this heavenly city going to heaven. And you guys know I don't believe that anybody goes to heaven or hell, the lake of fire, when they die. But I think Christians have the right idea of looking for something better than what we've got right now. I've talked with some people and they tell me that the kingdom is right now, all of it in its fullness. We're living in the millennium right now. And I've entertained that before. I've thought, well, you know, I don't have a problem with looking at everything one time at least. But this, this is as a miserable millennium kingdom if we're in it right now. We've got a lot going on that I don't care for. Uh, not just in our country, but in the world as a whole. 
this is not the kingdom of, of Yahweh. We can have a little piece of the kingdom in our own life and in our own community. I believe that. We pray somebody gets healed, we get a piece of the kingdom. We talk Scripture, we get excited, we have a feast, we get a piece of the kingdom. Colossians 2 said these feast days and new moons and Sabbaths are shadows of things to come. There's nothing wrong with that. But we look for something greater than what we've got right now. Hebrews 11 verses 8 through 10. It says, By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed to go out to a place that he was going to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived in the land of promise as a stranger. Did you catch that? He lived in the land of promise as a stranger. Living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the fellow heirs of the same promise. Verse 10, For he was expecting the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is Yahweh. So even in the land that Abraham lived in, he was a foreigner looking for a city that Yahweh built. Look down to verses 13 through 16. Hebrews chapter 11, we call it the great hall of faith. It talks about many men and women of faith, great faith. And in verse 13, it says, These all died in faith without receiving the promises. Now, there's a good verse that I think would teach that we don't all get our inheritance individually every time one of us dies. So, as if I die before John, I get my inheritance first and then John gets his next. And then if Jerry dies after John, he has to wait and get his inheritance. No, that's not what the Scriptures teach. The Scripture teaches that there are people that have died in Christ... I believe it's blissful sleep. Anybody ever went to sleep and woke up and said, man, it was the best sleep I ever got in my life. Boy, it was good. Well, multiply that because I believe the sleep of death for the saints is sweet sleep. And then the dead in Christ will rise. They won't prevent even those who are alive and remain at the coming of the Messiah. First Thessalonians 4 says, and we all receive our inheritance together. Well, verse 13, these all died in faith without receiving the promises. Showing that the people in Hebrews 11 that are mentioned that died, they didn't receive the promises, meaning the promises of the kingdom, the new covenant. But seeing them from a distance and welcoming them and admitting that they were strangers and temporary residents on the earth. Now that's us too. Strangers and temporary residents on the earth. Anybody ever said, well, you're a weird fella. You're a weird person. I get it a lot. <laughs> You're strange. Never met somebody quite like you. I've never met a preacher like you before. Never met a Christian like you. We're strangers and temporary residents on the earth. Verse 14, For those who say such things make clear that they are seeking a homeland. And if they remember that land from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they aspire to a better land that is a heavenly one. Therefore, the Almighty is not ashamed of them to be called their Almighty, for He has prepared for them a city. That's the city that Yahweh built, not by the hands of man. But the builder and the maker of that city is Yahweh. And that's heaven. But the key is, is that heaven is going to come down to us. See, I think that we go up to, to heaven. I think that's the biblical, scriptural way to put it. My point, though, is that this is talking about we don't have everything we're going to get now. It's not our best life now. 
It's our best life in the future. We can have a good life now. We can love now. We can serve now. And we should. And we should never use anything that I'm saying or just that we have an earnest. We should never use that as an excuse to just live any way we want to live. Romans 6 says, Should we therefore sin that grace abound? Yahweh forbid. For how can those who have died to sin live any longer therein? If we've been baptized into Christ, we've been baptized into His death. Therefore we were buried with Him in baptism and we were raised to walk in what? The newness of life. So we're thankful for the now, but we look for the fullness. When we pray Thy kingdom come, you know we're actually praying for the new covenant to take place. Now I've said all this and I haven't even got to Jeremiah 32 and 33. We may have to continue this next week. I don't want to keep you for too awful long. As we go back to Jeremiah 32 for the latter part of the sermon here, we will be going to verse 36 here momentarily. Let me give you a little bit of a background here. Jeremiah 32, 1 through 35. Now you can read this in your own reading time, study time. In Jeremiah 32, 1 through 35, there's a siege that's coming against the Israelite people and the Israelite land. And it's by the Babylonians. There's a Babylonian siege. There's destruction. Yahweh has actually promised wrath. It's because the Israelites, time and time again, refused to obey Him. Remember, that's where the fault was found with the people He made the covenant with, not with Yahweh's part. The fault wasn't found with Yahweh. The fault wasn't found with Yahweh's law. The fault was found with the people that He made the covenant with. Finally, he got fed up with it and said, there's going to be wrath and destruction coming and I'm going to use the Babylonians and the Chaldeans as a rod in my hand to come in and basically take over the land of Israel and then deport you to their country. But Yahweh says, where all this is taking place, there is going to come a day when I'm going to restore everything that you've lost. I'm going to restore the fortunes. I'm going to restore the land. I'm going to make the flocks graze here. I'm going to make everything beautiful again. I'm going to put my spirit within you. I'm going to cause you to keep my commandments. You'll never be uprooted from the land again. You'll never be destroyed again. But Yahweh's making these good promises while all the bad things are taking place. And while all the bad things are taking place, in Jeremiah 32, Yahweh tells prophet Jeremiah, I want you to buy some property. Go through the whole thing. Get some witnesses to sign the agreement. Pay the shekels, the silver, and buy some land. And Jeremiah's like, why, why do I want to buy land? Why would I buy land when our land is under the wrath of Yahweh? Yahweh, why do you want me to do that? And Yahweh says, because it's a sign and a promise that one day again, land will be bought and sold here. And everything will come back to beauty. One text says it'll look like the Garden of Eden. So that's the background in Jeremiah 32. We pick it up in verse 36. It says, So now therefore thus says Yahweh the Mighty One of Israel concerning this city of which you are saying, it will be given into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword and by the famine and by the plague. Look, I am going to gather them from all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger and in my fury and in great wrath. And I will bring them back to this place and I will cause them to dwell in safety. And they will be for me a people, and I will be for them Almighty, Mighty One. And I will give to them one heart. Listen to this. If this sounds familiar with Jeremiah 31. I will give to them one heart and one way to revere me forever. 
for good to them and to their children after them. And I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from them my doing good to them. And my reverence I will put in their hearts so that they will not turn aside from me. So here we talk about a regathering of the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Land inheritance. Safety in the land. One heart in one way. Here in verse 39, I believe is equivalent with the new heart and the new spirit in Ezekiel 36. The Torah within us. In verse 39, Yahweh says, I will put reverence for me in their hearts. Some Bibles say, I will put the fear of me in their hearts. Notice the fear is not mustered up by the Israelites. Yahweh puts it in their hearts so that they will fear and revere Yahweh forever. And he says in verse 40, he'll make an everlasting covenant. What covenant do you suppose that is? That's the new covenant. Everlasting. Why? Because Yahweh caused it to happen. He's been trying to get the Israelites to do it for a long time. Including us. And we keep messing things up. But because Yahweh makes this happen, it will happen. I will cause them to do this. I will put the fear in them. I will give them one heart. I will give them one way. Verse 41, And I will rejoice over them to do good to them, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my inner self. Verse 42, For thus says Yahweh, Just as I have brought to this people all this great disaster, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised to them. Sometimes we wonder, will all this really happen? I know I do. I'd be lying if I said I didn't. You know, the Messiah, since His first coming, it's been roughly about 2,000 years, and He hasn't came back yet. And that's a long time in human history, but 2,000 years to Yahweh is pretty much just like that. Not that big a deal to Yahweh uh, time-wise. But we wonder, is it really going to happen? Probably like the Israelites before the first coming of the Messiah, the Hebrews wondered, when will the Messiah come? And finally, He showed up, didn't He? <laughs> and He showed up the first time to take the role of the suffering servant, the humble role. A lot of people expected Him to be a militant soldier because there are prophecies that talk about the Messiah being a militant. But... That those prophecies will be fulfilled at Yeshua's second coming. See, so when he comes back again, he's not going to come back for forgiving of sin or dying on a tree or anything like that. He's going to come back with a rod of iron to rule uh, the whole world. Well, we wonder if that's going to happen. Verse forty-two should give you confidence that that it's going to happen. For thus says Yahweh, just as I have brought to this people all this great disaster. The great disaster that Yahweh brought on the nation of Israel and the land of Israel is a historical fact. It's not anything that can be disputed, whether it be the Babylonian siege or whether it be the Roman army siege in AD 70. Yahweh brought the destruction on Israel. You don't just read about it in the Bible. You can read about it in the works of Josephus. It's a historical fact that it really happened. And Yahweh here says, Just as I brought the disaster, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised to them. Now, it may not happen before I die. It may not happen before my grandchildren or great-grandchildren die. But when the time is right, that only the Father knows, it will happen. And He will send the Messiah 
again to this earth. Verse 43, And the fields will be bought in this land of which you are saying, It is desolation without humankind or animals. It has been given into the hands of the Chaldeans. They will buy fields with money and they will sign the deeds and they will seal them and they will call witnesses as witness in the land of Benjamin and in the surroundings of Jerusalem and in the cities of Judah and in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of Shephelah and in the cities of the Negev, for I will restore their fortunes, declares Yahweh. That's more promises about land restoration. And that's part of the promises of the new covenant. And then we would think, maybe we'll stop reading right there, but see, the, it continues in chapter 33. The same teaching. Let's just continue to read. And the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah a second time when he was still held back in the courtyard of the guard, saying, Thus says Yahweh who made the earth, Yahweh who formed it to establish it, Yahweh is his name. Call to me and I will answer you and I will tell you great things and inaccessible things that you have not known. For thus says Yahweh, the mighty one of Israel, concerning the houses of this city and concerning the houses of the kings of Judah that were torn down to make a defense against the siege ramps and against the sword. They are coming to fight against the Chaldeans and to fill them with the corpses of the people whom I will strike in my anger and in my wrath, for whom I have hidden my face from this city because of all their wickedness. Look, I am going to bring healing and help to it, and I will heal them, and I will reveal to them abundance of peace and reliability. And I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel, and I will rebuild them as in the beginning. Verse 8, And I will cleanse them from all their guilt that they sinned against me. And I will forgive all their iniquities that they sinned against me and that they rebelled against me. Verse 8 there, that purification of sin, that ties to Jeremiah 31, 34, where he says, I'll forgive their iniquities and their wrongdoings, I'll remember no more. And Ezekiel 36, 33 says, I will cleanse them from all their iniquities. All of this is promises of the kingdom. This is the good news of the kingdom. Where it's not just that Yahweh says you've been forgiven and He speaks proleptically, kind of like Brother TJ when he taught on Ephesians 1, I think it was Ephesians 1 or Ephesians 2 where it talks about we're seated with the Messiah in heavenly places. It's not that we're actually seated in the heavenly place with the Messiah, but it's as good as done if we're in the Messiah. So it can be spoken as though in a predestinated way that it's already taken place. See, This isn't talking about somebody just speaking about their sins have been forgiven, but yet they still commit sin. This is talking about your sins have been forgiven, wiped out, and you don't sin anymore. He cleanses you from all your iniquities. Now, this can't be talking about the modern state of Israel. Wars, bombings, it's tiny. The people are measurable. The prophecies here say that they will be immeasurable. We'll get to that later in verse 33, but it mentions it in 32 as well in 31. If Yahweh says He'll cleanse them from all their guilt... Forgive them of all their iniquities that they rebelled against me. That can't be today because, you know, right now they have this thing going on called the Gay Pride Month. And one of the biggest places in the world for this is Tel Aviv, Israel. And Tel Aviv, Israel could arguably be called the homosexual capital of the world. And there's going to be a quarter of a million people there to celebrate sin. Celebrate sexual immorality. That doesn't sound like Yahweh cleansing Israel of all her iniquities and all her sins. See, 
Jeremiah 33, verse 9. And it will be to me a name of jubilation, a praise, and a glory before all the nations of the earth who will hear all the good that I will do for them. And they will fear and they will tremble because of all the good and because of all the prosperity that I will provide for it. <laughs> Thus says Yahweh, again will be heard in this place of which you are saying, it is a waste without people and without animals. And the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without people and without inhabitants and without animals. You'll hear this, the voice of jubilation, the voice of joy, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the voices of those who say, praise Yahweh of hosts for Yahweh is good for His loyal love is forever. The voices of those who bring thank offerings to the house of Yahweh. That's talking about the temple, the sanctuary. That Yahweh commands us in Leviticus 19 to have reverence for, where he says, Keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. It's talking about when the temple is restored in the kingdom. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as in the beginning, says Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, again, there will be in this waste place without people and animals and in all its towns pasture for shepherds allowing their flock to lie down in the towns of the hill country in the towns of the Shephelah in the towns of the Negev and in the land of Benjamin and in the surroundings of Jerusalem and in the towns of Judah flocks will again pass under the hands of the counter says Yahweh 14 it continues look days are coming now remember that goes back to Jeremiah 31 verse 31 where he says behold the days are coming and in verse 38 of chapter 31, Behold, the days are coming. Remember when Jeremiah says the days are coming, he's talking about the Messianic era, the future coming of, of the Messiah, the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. He says, Look, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, and I will fulfill the good promise that I promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and in, in that time, I will make a branch of righteousness sprout for David, and he will execute justice and righteousness in the land. I believe that this branch that sprouts for David is Yeshua the Messiah. Now, He came the first time and He's coming back at the second time. And if you remember, when the Virgin Miriam was visited by Gabriel, part of what Gabriel told her was, your son is going to be great He'll be the Son of the Most High. And it says that He will inherit the throne of His father David. This is Luke chapter 1. He'll inherit the throne of His father David. And He'll rule over the house of Jacob forever. And of His kingdom there shall be no end. So that's a promise that Gabriel told Virgin Miriam about her son. That the Messiah would be from the Davidic line. And then in Revelation 22, Yeshua talks about He's the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. And this is because anybody who reads the, the Tanakh, the Older Testament, and you read it without being biased, uh, where you try to read the New Testament and spiritualize everything away first, but you read the Older Testament first, you'll see that the promised Messiah would come from the lineage of David. And this took place because of His legal father, Joseph, who was from the house and the lineage of David. That's how it took place. These are great promises. This is the branch that sprouts out of David. He'll execute justice and righteousness in the land. This is talking about the second coming, though. 
in verse 16 it says, In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is what they shall call it. Uh, the King James says, This is the name wherewith she, she shall be called. The she is talking about the city of Jerusalem. And she'll be called Yahweh our righteousness. So the name of Yahweh is given to the restored Jerusalem, or we might say the new Jerusalem. It's called Yahweh our righteousness. Why? Because the righteousness of Yahweh is there in the city. You say, so there's a place called after Yahweh's name? Absolutely. Remember, Abraham did the same thing in Genesis 22. When he found the ram in the thicket and Yahweh provided, the Bible says Abraham called that place Yahweh will provide. He gave the name Yahweh to that place. If you look at the end of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 48, it says that the name of that city, in those last eight chapters of Ezekiel, the name of that city is Yahweh Shammah. S-H-A-M-M-A-H. Meaning Yahweh is here. His righteousness is here. His justice is here. And then we continue on to the end of 33. Let's close with this in 17 through 22. I'm not going to comment much on this, but this is still part of the new covenant promise. And this blows me away because this is not taught. Verse 17, For thus says Yahweh, A man who sits on the throne of the house of Israel will not be cut off for David. Now I believe that's a reference to the Mashiach, to the Messiah, from the lineage of David legally by his adopted father, Joseph. Verse 18, And for the priests, a man from the Levites who offers burnt offerings and who burns grain offerings and who brings sacrifices will not be cut off before me forever. This is where when you read commentaries and scholars, everything, everything starts getting spiritualized. Some people say this is talking about the church. The Levites is talking about the church. <laughs> we're, king, we're kings and priests now. Some people say this is talking about the Messiah and they try to say the Messiah had Levite blood in him. And my mind automatically goes to Hebrews 7, which the whole point of Hebrews 7 is that he wasn't a Levite, but that he was from the tribe of what? Judah, from David. This is talking about the Levites will be restored and you can find prophecies like this at the end of Isaiah 66 where he takes some for priests and some for Levites. You can find this in the book of Malachi where he refines... Like like gold refined in a fire, he refines the sons of Levi. And this is from the line of Zadok. Zadok was a grandson of Aaron, a son of Eleazar, one of Aaron's sons. Eleazar was one of Aaron's initial sons. In Ezekiel 48, and all through Ezekiel 40, 43, and 44, talks about the line of Zadok who was an, an Aaronite or a Levite. And these Levites here, they make these burnt offerings and grain offerings and it says, they will not be cut off before me forever. The Levites are part of the new covenant promise here. So that lets me know that when people read the book of Hebrews, they're reading it wrongly. We need to reevaluate our reading of the book of Hebrews. I began to do that a while back, but I continue to fine-tune my understanding of Hebrews. Let's read the rest of the chapter. And the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah saying, Thus says Yahweh, if you could break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night would not come at their time, then my covenant could be broken with David, my servant, from having a son who could rule on his throne, and with the Levites, the priests, and my ministers. That's Yahweh's way of saying it's not going to happen. 
Remember when he said in Jeremiah 31 that if you measure the heavens or measure the earth, then I'll do away with my people Israel. And it's rhetorical. He's trying to tell you it's not going to happen. It's the same thing here. If you can stop day and night from happening where they don't come at their time, then his covenant with David and Levi will be broken. The point is, it's not going to be broken. But it's hard to find somebody who will believe this chapter. I have found a few, but it's very difficult. 22, as the host of heaven cannot be counted and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will make numerous the offspring of David my servant and the Levites who minister to me. And the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah saying, Have you not seen how these people speak, saying the two clans or families whom Yahweh chose? He has also rejected them, thus they spurn my people from being a nation before them any longer. Those two clans or families could be Israel and Judah, Possibly though it could be David and Aaron in context as well. I'm not sure about that, but it could go either way contextually in these chapters. Thus says Yahweh, if my covenant with day and with night, the regulations of heaven and earth I had not established, then the offspring of Jacob and David my servant I would reject from choosing rulers from his offspring over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for I will restore their fortunes and I will have compassion on them." We know that this hasn't taken place. There's not Levites. There's no tabernacle. There's nobody actually ruling on the throne of David, establishing righteousness and justice by Yahweh's standards in the land. This is a prophecy for behold, the days are coming. This is all part of the gospel of the kingdom. This is part of the new covenant. The new covenant is the same as the gospel of the kingdom. It's the same as the giving of the Spirit. It's the same as salvation. It's the same as being born again. In the Messiah, our status can be spoken of now in a predestined way, but the actuality or the finality of our status and our existence remains yet to be seen in the future because we are strangers and pilgrims on this earth and we look for the city whose builder and maker is Yahweh. And we're going to die in faith just like the other saints in Hebrews 11, not having yet received the promises, but will die in the hope that one day we will. So we need to get in Messiah. It should give us hope, but we need to get in the Messiah and bring forth fruit now. Those outside of the Messiah get nothing better. But those inside the Messiah do. Now there may still be hope in the first stage, or I should say second stage. We're already in the first stage of the kingdom in our hearts, in our minds now, with the earnest of the Spirit. But in the second stage, which is 1,000 years, whether that's literally 1,000 years or just a long time, there may still be hope for people in the millennium. And this should just show us that Yahweh is merciful. And the reason I say this is because in Isaiah chapter 2, it talks about how all the nations will stream to Jerusalem. They'll say, come let us go up to the house of Yahweh. He will teach us His ways. In Zechariah 14, it mentions survivors from among the nations that go up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. It mentions Egypt and all the nations surrounding the land of Israel. Revelation 20 mentions the first resurrection, and it says that Satan is bound during that 1,000 years so he cannot deceive anyone. There has to be somebody there to be able to be deceived. Now, it can't be the first fruits, those that have risen with the Messiah as the first fruits that received immortality. They're kings and priests and teachers with the Messiah. I haven't put all this together and finally tuned it, 
But my point is, is that there may even still be an opportunity in the second stage of the kingdom for people who didn't repent now to repent later. Don't ask me how all that works because I hadn't figured it out in my mind yet. But I'm throwing out that out there as a possibility. Once again, we miss so much because we stop reading too soon. Or we start in Hebrews 8. We say, let's talk about the new covenant. Turn to Hebrews 8. <laughs> or turn to 2 Corinthians 3. Don't you know the letter killeth and the spirit maketh alive? People tell me that one. As though the letter and the spirit of the law are contradictory, but they're not. And the spirit of the law just means the intent of the law. The heart of the law. That's not where we ought to start. And we'll miss all this if we start there. Because when people start there, they usually stop there. Don't you know we're under a new covenant now, Matthew? Well, I do believe it's begun. I believe it was initiated by the blood of the Messiah. Matthew 26. He said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood that was shed for many for the remission of sins. But it hasn't come to complete fulfillment yet. And it won't until the second coming of the Messiah. And we won't have that full new birth until the second coming of the Messiah. We won't have the fullness of the Spirit until the second coming of the Messiah. And there's so much that has to happen that's left at the second coming of the Messiah. These are the promises of the new covenant. I think that's all I'm going to teach on the new covenant. Brother Jerry and Brother TJ will teach next Sabbath and new moon. I might go into the book of Hebrews. I might go back to the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know yet. We'll see how Yahweh leads me. I know we've read a lot of Bible today, and this sermon has been more of a Bible study than, I guess, a sermon. Um, But I hope that you've learned something and grasped something that you can stick in your pocket and take home with you. And the next time somebody says something, well, what about the New Covenant? I thought we were under the New Covenant. You can say, well, let's, can we sit down for a little bit and go over Jeremiah 31? Go over that with them. And say, whoa, 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 don't go, don't leave yet. Let's go over 32. Whoa, 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 don't leave yet. <laughs> let's go over 33. This is the good news, brothers and sisters. It'll be a great time. I love everybody.